Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast with your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome, everyone, to episode number seven and to the first of a two-part series of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and joining me today is our guest, Jeffrey Price, an internationally recognized aviation security expert. Jeff is currently a university professor at the Metropolitan State University of Denver in the Department of Aviation and Aerospace Science. He is considered to be one of the leading experts in the world on aviation security and airport safety. Jeff began his professional career as a U.S. Coast Guard officer. He then entered airport management in the operations department at Stapleton International Airport in 1992, where he developed the Airfield Manager Training Program. He then assisted in the opening of the Denver International Airport, where he then served as the assistant security director until 1998. Jeff then moved over to the Jefferson County Airport as their director of public relations, marketing, and property management and was later appointed the position of airport manager in 1999 until 2002. In 2003, Jeff founded Leading Edge Strategies, an airport management safety and security training organization. Jeff also serves as a lead trainer for the American Association of Airport Executives, AAAE, where he authored the Airport Certified Employee Security Program, and is the lead author of the organization's Certified Member Program. Jeff has trained over 2,000 airport security coordinators and over 800 TSA inspectors, among thousands of others in airport management and operations. He provides media consultation and serves as an expert witness on aviation and airport safety issues throughout the world. And on top of all that, Jeff is also a certified protection professional through the American Society of Industrial Security Organization and is also a certified aviation security professional and certified Homeland Security Level 2 member through the American Board of Certification in Homeland Security. Jeff, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today to talk about the 9-11 attacks in 2001, a difficult topic that still cuts deep for many Americans and for what will ever be remembered as a sad day in both American history and aviation history. Ron, thank you for having me. Well, again, we appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, You are, as I mentioned earlier, an international expert on aviation security. Uh, You teach at a university, and um, I know I provided our listeners with a pretty extensive background of yours. However, there always seems to be gaps to fill, and I would like to give you the opportunity to do just that and uh, perhaps give us an idea about just how you ended up in this uh, world of aviation security and why you decided to join the U.S. Coast Guard to first serve your country before embarking into the aviation sector. Absolutely. I think that the uh, just the, the short end of that is I got my degree as a professional pilot and then went into the Coast Guard actually to be a pilot, uh, have all my civilian ratings and so forth, but um, lost my medical when I was in flight school. So finished out my time in the Coast Guard, came back to Denver. I'd originally worked at Stapleton Airport prior to uh, going into the military. It was one of my many college jobs. So I went back there and started in airport operations. Uh, that led to airport security, which eventually led to uh, running my own airport for a period of time. And that's really kind of what, what brings us to 9-11 is on 9-11, there was a, um, 
major security conference going on up in uh, Alaska, and a lot of airport security coordinators found themselves, uh, ironically, out of town that day. And I was at another conference in Hawaii uh, during that week. So many of us were trying to run our operations from afar uh, on, on limited communication lines. Uh, text messaging wasn't what it is today. Uh, video chat was nearly non-existent. And we were just trying to work on cell phone uh, with everybody else on the planet on a cell phone trying to manage the, the whole situation. You know, Jeff, I think it's important to emphasize that you had to find a way to run things remotely, really on the fly, and long before remote work was a thing. And as you mentioned, there were really some cascading effects from this attack, especially to the country's telecommunications infrastructure. But again, it's important to note that this attack happened in 2001, where the remote infrastructure that we've become so reliant on today was pretty much non-existent back then. So here you were on the day of the attacks off the mainland out in Hawaii. What were some of your main challenges getting tethered back into your airport and the aviation apparatus as a whole? I think the, the biggest challenge that was for me is the, the, the lack of communication. We had to rely on email and this, our cell phones. That was really all we had. Uh, the, the infrastructure we have in place today especially post-pandemic with the advent of Zoom and Microsoft Teams and so forth, none of that really existed. We could do webcam, but it was a highly kind of glitchy process to, to do that. It was just much more efficient to use the phone or email. So a lot of us found ourselves trying to figure out how to get back home in a world where aviation had basically just been shut down and trying to communicate over jam cell phone uh, frequencies and then just go back and forth with email, which even back then the internet access was not that great. So it might take a while to get an email response from somebody. Meanwhile, people back at our home airports are working real time as aircraft are just landing left and right at any airport that's close. They're not worried about whether it's a commercial service or general aviation airport. They're just trying to get down. So the military escorts bringing aircraft in and trying to park planes wherever we could find them. And it was basically all, all of our assistant directors who, who the load really fell on to, to manage that entire process. It was, it was very, very challenging. Oh, man, I'm sure it was probably one of the most, if not the most challenging moments of many individuals' aviation careers, whichever aspect of aviation they were a part of. Now, before we get too far into the weeds, or now before we get too far into what's changed over the last two decades since the attack to secure the aviation sector and the friendly skies, I'd like to transport us back to that day on the 11th of September in 2001 and provide our audience with a historical review and some context, um, especially since we have some security professionals today who were either extremely young or not even born yet now working in the security field. And I think it's important to share this information, especially to educate the generations behind our own to ensure they understand what happened that day, what the implications were and what the impact was, not just professionally, but also personally for so many. This was, as you know, the deadliest attack on American soil since Pearl Harbor, and the deadliest terrorist attack involving aviation as the method of attack. So if you could provide that historical review and then share an overview of events that transpired that day, many of which the American public really wasn't purview to as they unfolded. The interesting thing is the infrastructure we see in place today was, I would say, 80% non-existent 
on September 10th of 2001. We just didn't have the, the robust security infrastructure that we have today. And there's always people critical of the system, and people should always be critical of the system simply because that's what makes us better. But uh, on that day, we just didn't have all this stuff. And it's, we had security at a certain level, but it certainly wasn't anything like it was or like it is today. The irony of that morning is that almost all across the country, September 11th of 2001 was a beautiful day. It started off with just clear skies. You go back and look at the, the historical weather maps of that time, and almost everywhere in the United States, it was just a clear, beautiful day, uh, just blue skies and, and nice weather. And the day started out so perfect and ended so tragic that really the, the juxtaposition of that, we woke up in one world and we went to sleep in another one. You know, we've seen this again with the pandemic, but that was a little bit more of a slow roll. We could kind of see that coming to a certain extent. With 9-11, it, it happened in the matter of a couple of hours, our entire world changed. That morning, the, uh, there were four aircraft that departed, um, two from Boston, one from Newark, one from Dulles. And when the first flight uh, is, is hijacked and then turned around and crashes into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, that was American Airlines Flight 11, the thinking at the time was this was just an accident. There was really not a thought in our minds that there was a hijacked plane intentionally crashed into the building. It's not that it had never happened before. There had been attempts to do things like that, but it was always an attempt to get the captain to do that, to force them to do it. We didn't have pilot hijackers, so to speak. So it wasn't something we were looking for. At that point in time, virtually every news camera in the world is now focused on the North Tower and what's going on. Then United Flight 175 comes in for the entire world to see and crashes into the South Tower. At that point, I think there was probably not a soul on the planet that was watching that that still thought this was some sort of an accident. It was almost instantaneously known that, okay, this is an attack of some sort. This is a terrorist attack. This is intentional. This is not an accident. At that point, it's it's almost that, that stunned moment that people experience when something surprises them right away, where they get that, that little delay of, is this really happening? What just happened? What does this mean? What do I do? And we had, we had a nation in stunned silence when that occurred. Uh, then following up on that, we have um, American Airlines Flight 77, which suddenly goes into the Pentagon. And now the question became, do we have a nation of flying bombs out there? Because we don't know who else is hijacked, who else is going to be hijacked. I remember my wife had actually called me very early in the morning in Hawaii time. And because she was back uh, here in Denver and she told me what was going on, told me to turn on the TV right away. And this is after the North Tower got hit. And I immediately told her she worked in the 18th floor of uh, Marriott building downtown Denver. And I told her, I said, get out, just get out of the building, get home, get as far away from Denver, uh, the city as you can. Because uh, we didn't know. We, we started hearing rumors that there were more aircraft hijacked that something was headed to Los Angeles, that something was headed to Denver, that something was headed to all these different airports. It just became chaos. The U.S. Military Command Center, uh, ironically, had just finished a, an exercise 
uh, hijack exercise up in the northeast sector of the United States. And their communication with the Air Force and with the military uh, was was very scattered. Nobody could figure out what was going on. And the FAA is, is trying to figure out, are, do we have hijacks? The military is, is trying to figure out, is this real world or is this simulated? So all this confusion is happening. Then they, the air traffic controllers discover that Flight 93 has crashed uh, down into uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And at that point, even though the um, FAA had already given the order to start landing aircraft, it was still unknown as to, okay, yeah, we're landing aircraft, but who do we have control of? And there was there's techniques in place that air traffic control and pilots can communicate to let them know whether they're in control of the plane or not. But when the hijackers are also pilots, they likely would have known those techniques as well. So it's it's very different trying to discern who the good guys and who the bad guys are at that point. Uh, and there were several flights where they weren't sure and had to, had to be military escorts back to uh, back to the nearest airport. So that the morning began just absolutely beautiful. Suddenly the skies were filled with the smoke left over from the World Trade Center towers, both collapsing. Uh, the smoke of the Pentagon wafting across Washington, D.C. I don't mean to over-dramatize it, but it, for all of us that live that day, that's like indelible ink into our psyche that just we'll never forget it. And we'll never forget the, the, the destruction that we all witnessed on that day. Jeff, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's one of those days that most Americans still remember very vividly exactly where they were at the moments of the attacks. Myself included, I was about 10 years old and my mom had asked if, uh, if I could check the weather one last time before we left the house to attend a school field trip. And that just happened to be at the exact time when the first plane hit the North Tower. And quickly the news shifted from morning weather and traffic to breaking news about an airplane that had crashed into the World Trade Center tower. And much like you, Jeff, we didn't know it was an attack until that second plane hit. And in that moment, the light bulbs went off and we immediately knew this was some sort of attack on civilian infrastructure. And really all I knew uh, was that my dad, who was an airline pilot, was flying somewhere along the eastern seaboard. We didn't know if it was his plane that was involved or really what was going to happen next. And as you mentioned about the infrastructure, we didn't hear from him until later that day. And believe it or not, the school actually continued with the field trip. And my mom and I returned to find out that my dad had called the principal and sent a neighbor to the school to take my two siblings home. Because what he knew, and we didn't at the time, having been grounded and briefed by a government agency, was that there were potential targets everywhere across the United States. And he wanted everybody to be in one place at home. Um, could you speak to the expansiveness of this unknown, having an entire mainland uncertain and unsure about the possibility of other attacks, where they were going to be, and if there were going to be more, and the responses that followed in response to this? The, the challenge was the, the unknown, and you've got 5,000 aircraft over the United States at any given time that we know about. Those are aircraft on flight plans, air traffic controls talking to them, but then you still have thousands of other aircraft which are not on flight plans, not required to be, and those are, those are unknowns as well. So we kind of take a look at that gigantic amount of aircraft that now suddenly have to land. And in the meantime, let's try and sort out the good guys from the bad guys. And the, the logistical nightmare that every airport operator had to go through at that point in time 
trying to figure out not just where to land planes, but what to do with all these passengers. Not, not every airport in the United States is a commercial service airport. So they were having commercial aircraft land at general aviation airports that aren't prepared to do anything with the passengers. So you, you had that, those logistics going on. And just to see the scope and the magnitude of what was happening, uh, I think it's easy for a lot of people to go back in hindsight in 2020 and say, well, how come you didn't do this and this and this? We didn't know at the time what was even going on. Uh, it's easy to predict the, the, uh, the outcome of a football game after you've already seen it. But during the game, you just didn't know. You didn't know the variables. So I think the, the biggest part was the, the massive amount of confusion that was taking place. Uh, the intelligence communities um, had an idea of exactly who had done this and, uh, and, and who to point the finger at, but not a whole lot of thought as to what can we do now to prevent this from happening even more while we're still trying to get all these planes to land, because it took hours for all the planes to come in and, and eventually land. So I, I think the biggest thing was uh, just the massive amount of confusion everybody was in. Nobody knew really what was happening still. We knew what had happened, but we didn't know what was to come. And then also the lack of communication. I have tons of friends in the aviation industry, and so many of them are airline pilots. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, okay, has anything happened to any of them? So, and also I know people in New York and people in DC and you, you start, you start to wonder, are they okay? So you're dealing with the professional side of things, your, your job. In the meantime, you've got all these personal worries that you're dealing with as well. Oh, definitely. And I'm sure on that day for so many first responders on the ground who lived in those areas and perhaps had friends or family inside the World Trade Center buildings or the Pentagon at the time of the attacks and even airport personnel like yourself, who also maybe had friends or family members in the air on that day. It's a really difficult thing to parcel out the professional side from the personal sometimes. And this day must have been just so difficult for so many. And, and Jeff, I remember specifically almost an immediate change between 9-11 and 9-12. Um, many of the things that were once very common and at large taken for granted changed seemingly overnight. I remember before the attacks, you know, doing something like dropping my dad off at the airport and walking with him right up to the gate where we would wave goodbye only to then a few days later pick him back up at a gate when he returned home from his trip. It was one of my favorite things to do as a little kid, and it was one of the immediate changes that happened following the attacks. And at large, a lot of what was previously considered normal for us as an aviation family and for many everyday travelers was radically changed very quickly following the attacks. And Jeff, could you speak to kind of, as you said, hindsight is twenty twenty, and and before that day and the years leading up to the attacks, what was the security mindset and the threat landscape prior to these attacks? What kind of world were we living in, so to speak? I think it's really easy to forget what the world was like before these attacks and the rationale behind the decisions that led to such a radical shift in the days, months, years, and really even decades that followed. Absolutely. That, that was the thing that we lost so much of our, our lifestyle, uh, not just on that day, but in the years to come because of that day. And, and those simple things like being able to go to the gate to, to bid farewell to loved ones or to welcome loved ones, seeing, you know, seeing my, my grandparents walk down that jet bridge door, uh, you know, coming right off the airplane. And, and I knew I was going to have a great visit with them and, 
you know, and then when it was time for them to go to be able to stand right at the gate and wave, that all went away. And it, it might not seem significant today, especially to those that did not grow up in that world. But but we lost an incredible part of our freedoms. Just simple things like that, along with along with eventually some privacy freedoms and some other things that I'm not saying are unjustified, but it was sad to watch them go away. And the in the, the immediate aftermath of 9-11, they, they, of course, shut down the aviation systems. It took them a couple of days to get those back in business. But one of the first things they did was shut down the, the ability for non-travelers to go to the gates. Really, the only reason that was done was because the checkpoint operations, which at the time were primarily airline personnel or airline contractors, we didn't have a TSA back then. Uh, they had to really slow down what they were doing and take a, a hard look at every suitcase that came through there and every person that came through. Uh, lines were backed up for hours and hours, which today we see that during holidays at some airports, but that wasn't something that really happened back then. A long line back then was 20 minutes, um, not two and a half hours. So they, they restrict access to the gates, mainly to cut down on the number of people they have to screen. Uh, we thought that would go back eventually once the system was efficient enough that we could process additional people. But here we sit two decades later and, and we've never gotten back to that. And it, it was just one of those simple things that we lost. Uh, additionally, the, the system couldn't just change with a snap of a finger because we didn't have the infrastructure in place for it. So we had to sort of band-aid what we could. And I remember some of the, the procedures at, this, at the checkpoint. You still had the same screening personnel as you had on September 10th and 11th, but now they were held to much higher standards. They were uh, deploying National Guard troops uh, to the airport, uh, mainly just to watch Really, they didn't even know what they were looking for at the time. It was just more of a uh, a presence of of authority, and hopefully to deter uh, future um, future such acts. But also, today we have active shooter threats and terminal bombing threats, and you know those types of things. So, you know, it's deterrence for those types of things as well. But the other thing I remember getting on the plane, it, it took us it took me several days to get back to the mainland, and. Uh, I remember going to the airport in Kona and I, I said, Hey, I have this ticket, which I know is no good anymore, but um, how do I get back to the mainland? And they gave me a, a kind of some sort of universal boarding pass of some sort. I know that's not what it was called, but they said, here's your authority to get on a plane, go find something. And I could find a flight from Kona to Los Angeles later that day. And there was no seat assignments. There wasn't anything. There was jump on anything that's got wings and get to someplace. So I managed to get myself to Los Angeles and then the next day found another flight back home to Denver. Um, but it was very much the, just that, that chaos of everyone trying to get where they were supposed to go. I distinctly remember, however, when we got on the plane at Kona, the pilot coming over the intercom system and how they do their normal, you know, thank you for flying, welcome to the plane sort of stuff. The, the captain said, look, we're, we're going to make sure nothing happens to your flight. And we're going to ask every passenger on here to, to help us make sure that that doesn't happen as well. And if anything anything occurs, we want you to jump in and help us out. We're going to do everything we can to give you a, a secure flight home. And that, that would have been unheard of prior to 9-11. Everyone would have wondered what was really happening if a captain said that. So there was very much that, that national 
attitude that this isn't going to happen again. We don't know what you got in store, but now we're awake. And it wouldn't be for a few more months that we would really start to see some, some more changes in the system. Um, changes with no box cutters and knives that was implemented rather quickly. Um, creation of TSA. Uh, that legislation was passed by November of 2001. Uh, and for legislation to get pushed from September to November and get through, that I mean, that's extraordinary. That doesn't happen these days. Uh, so, But that was the legislation that created the Transportation Security Administration. And, and even then, it took the, the organization didn't turn into 80 some thousand employees overnight. Uh, it took a full year before they would start uh, turning all of these contractors into TSA employees or moving those out who couldn't make the cut, and putting other people in there. And uh, it still was a work in progress a couple of years after 9-11 because the system just couldn't magically change overnight. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the speed of legislation and, and certainly myself coming from a legislative and policy background. You're right. That is something that you very rarely see near unanimous decisions, very little dissent out in D.C. and then outwards to the rest of the nation um, very, very quickly. And everybody was on board with what they felt at the time was immediate measures that needed to be taken place, followed by the policy to back that. And um, I want to, again, kind of go backwards into the historical context. And hijackings have happened before 9-11. But the context, like you said, was very different. When we think of it, even as Americans, it's something that was done over there. And by over there, I mean Middle East or European nations. And, and a lot of it had to do in the 80s and 90s related to the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Hamas, some other left-wing groups out in Europe. Um, but it was done more in a political stance. Um, the planes were not used as weapons, certainly to attack infrastructure on the ground, more as bargaining chips to get you know political members or detainees released from prison. Um, what was kind of the security context in the American mindset among security professionals, aviation professionals relating to hijacks? Was there something there? Was it related more to those events that had been seen in the past? And this was something new and radically different that had happened. This was very different than what we'd seen in the past. Historically, there's been over 700 hijackings since the beginning of aviation. Uh, there's been over 100 bombings. Up until 9-11, the bombings killed far more people. The hijacking, there was kind of a mode of operation for standard hijacking. Somebody took over the plane. They would either in the air, on the ground, make their demands, the FBI would come out or whatever the agency was, whatever country they were in, uh, would come out, negotiate, and the hijackers would end up usually in one of three situations, um, either dead, uh, arrested, or in some cases, particularly outside the United States, successful. Uh, they would get to a, a foreign country that didn't have an um, extradition treaty with us, and, and they would get away with what they got away with. But the whole point was let's not kill everybody. It's let's use these people in this aircraft as a bargaining chip to get what we want. So that was the mindset of your sort of traditional hijacking. There also had not been a successful hijacking in the United States in over two decades prior to 9-11. It really wasn't in the national conversation. The, the last significant attack on aviation that had taken place against the United States prior to 9-11 was the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. And that occurred in 1988, killing 270 people as uh, Pan Am 103 departed out of 
uh, London Heathrow Airport, uh, knowingly with a bomb on board. Our aviation security system at the time changed quite a bit to focus more on prevention of more bombs. Then when TWA 800 goes down uh, due to an accident in 1996, for a year they thought that was a bomb. So they investigated it, both legislatively and and regulatory uh, agencies. Hey, this is probably a bomb. And so we implemented even more security procedures to prevent bombings back then, but nothing to prevent hijackings. So our focus on 9-11 was really on bombings. And if there was a hijacking, first off, nobody believed it. But, you know, because something that happened a generation ago, you know, that stuff just doesn't happen anymore, right? But the aircraft, when they, when they were notified that they were being hijacked, you immediately put yourself into that mindset of, okay, get the plane on the ground, get the FBI involved, let's get the negotiations going. Airports had contingencies for even where to put those aircraft and how to handle that situation. We didn't have that for somebody plunging an aircraft into a building. Uh, as I mentioned a little bit briefly before, there had been some attempts, probably less than 12 in the entire history of aviation, for people trying to get someone to crash a plane into a building. It even happened in, in 1994 with a, a, a small Cessna 152 two-seater aircraft. Uh, Army private crashed it into the White House. and But nobody thought, oh, gee, what if somebody does this with a much larger aircraft? Uh, just because we figured it'll be too hard to hijack. And how are you going to convince the pilot to do that? Where we skipped the logic on that was, well, wait, what if the hijacker knows how to fly the plane? So that was just not in the vocabulary. Um, internationally, I remember reading intelligence briefs on Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda threatening to attack U.S. aviation. That briefing came across my desk as often as my coffee order did. It was just, it, it got to the point where, okay, we've cried wolf, this guy's going to do something or not. And it, it almost made you numb to it that you heard it so often. So we got some briefings in August of 2001 from the FBI as airport directors uh, just to be on heightened awareness. They weren't certain that something was going to happen, but from time to time we get these briefings, just, just be on heightened awareness and, okay, we'll, we'll kind of take a look around and you know scrutinize things a little bit more. Um, and we'd received that in August of uh, 2001, but we'd received that before too. When you hear something's going to happen so many times and nothing ever happens, you just become numb to it. And that's really where we were at on 9-11. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And we've had a uh, a guest on the podcast before, Aaron Arp, and, and he often equates it to calling it the daily delete when you're just inundated with certain intelligence um, over and over and over again and you become numb to it and you begin to just start you know, psychologically discounting and you start to delete it either physically in an email or, uh, or mentally in your mind. Um, and it becomes less and less significant, the more you hear about it and the less it happens. Um, now with that, talking about the specific hijackers and their MO of actually taking over the airplane themselves and flying it, um, you have an interesting nexus, both as a rated commercial pilot, and as a security professional in the aviation world. And you can uniquely speak to the uh, level of training, the level of expertise it takes to fly, you know, not just a small Cessna, but a actual airliner um, and what it takes to understand how to fly that and how to navigate in addition to that and get to a destination. And uh, you can speak to, I'm sure, the coordination and the training that it takes to lead up to something like this 
as a complex coordinated terror attack. Can you speak to the complexity of the training that would have had to uh, happen on the front end for this to be successful like it unfortunately was? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, The training starts like every other pilot training. You start out in a small aircraft, you work your way up to larger aircraft. I, I think one of the things that it's important to note is that prior to 9-11, we never vetted flight students. There was not a procedure in place to say, do you even have a criminal history? We didn't check. Um, you know, is your, your money's good here, so we're going to go flying, um, was kind of the, the theory at the time. So for the hijackers that had basically an open checkbook, uh, you can advance through your, your ratings and your certificates rather quickly. Because as long as you got money to fly, you can keep up that pace. Uh, especially if somebody else is covering your living expenses. But it does take a, a while to master the uh, not just really the, the controls of the aircraft. That's definitely a significant part. But what a lot of people don't realize is how hard it is to navigate. Today, it's so much easier because we have global positioning systems and everything. But back then, that we weren't navigating with global positioning systems. You, you had to learn triangulation. You had to learn how to use ground navigational aids, uh, radio frequency transmissions, and and triangulated your position. And there was a lot of work to do just to navigate. And that, uh, that requires a pretty good level of training just so you can do that. Uh, then it's, it's kind of interesting. The flying an aircraft is not that difficult. Taking off and landing is very difficult. So the, uh, even the takeoff part is, is uh, not as difficult as the landing part. So if I need to teach somebody how to fly a plane, and all they have to do is fly it pretty much straight and level without worrying about where the thing comes down, then that's going to be a lot easier uh, lesson plan than, okay, here's how you take off and here's how you're supposed to land and those types of things. But the the complexity of it, the, the, each of the hijacker uh, teams only had one of them that knew how to fly the plane. So you had what were called the muscle hijackers which were literally the, the, the fighters. They were the ones that storm the cockpit, overtake the pilots, um, threaten the passengers, keep the passengers under control. Meanwhile, the one hijacker slash pilot goes up to fly the plane. So they really, uh, you know, they really had thought this through, um, but it does require a good level of training to be able to, to navigate. And frankly, um, I'm sure there was a lot of luck involved in this, especially with the Pentagon, but just flying into a ground target and hitting the spot you want in an aircraft that's going 400 miles an hour is still not that easy. I'm sure everybody on Flight Simulator can disagree with me, but once you're actually up there and dealing with real-world physics and dealing with uh, the noise of the aircraft as it goes faster than it should, and uh, now the flight characteristics are going to change a little bit and so forth, so... Um, so I think there's a tremendous amount of luck involved, but uh, there was also a tremendous amount of training involved for them to be able to do that. Most definitely. And and I'd like to get into the transition even more from that day into today and the relative threats that we face today and how we've managed over two decades to relatively keep the skies a friendly place to fly. But Jeff, before we do so, I would like to take a moment to listen to a brief message as we at GSPG Podcast take a moment to highlight the 9-11 Memorial in New York City. And to our listeners, we will be back with more from Jeff after this message.
We, the GSPG Podcast, would like to encourage our listeners to visit the 9-11 Memorial Museum, located at the World Trade Center in New York City. The Memorial Museum tells the story of 9-11 through media, narratives, and a collection of monumental and authentic artifacts, presenting visitors with personal stories of loss, recovery, and hope. The 9-11 Memorial and Museum is committed to providing ongoing resources for students, teachers, families, and the general public. Each day, the memorial helps us to remember the victims, the families, and the survivors dealing with loss and recognizing the lasting consequences of 9-11 on individual lives. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit and relies on the generous support of the public and private donors to further their mission. You can learn more about visiting or donating to the museum at www.911memorial.org. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Uh, we are with Jeff Price, uh, aviation security professional, and uh, we are talking about the 9-11 attacks today. It is the anniversary date of those attacks. And uh, Jeff, we were just uh, discussing the complications and the complexity in the training and a little bit of the luck on the excited attackers and uh, Jeff, I'd like to transition now and discuss the setup of the airplanes and the immediate changes that happen more specifically. Um, it's my understanding that directly after 9-11, the doors were addressed as a major security vulnerability within the aircraft. And those had been changed on the onset, and I'm sure they've been changed several times. And we don't need to get into too much of the specifics, but mainly talk about the vulnerabilities on that day and uh, what was immediately identified to be changed. The cockpit door at the time was basically the same door that they had on the laboratory. It, it was not that robust. It wasn't, that, wasn't even that heavy. The reason for that is that every time I put more weight on a plane, I've got to take off fuel, cargo, passengers, or bags. And one of those things is essential to flying. The other three is essential to revenue. So everything on the plane was designed to be as light as possible. The, uh, the cockpit doors were one of the things that they addressed right away in terms of, okay, now we need something that is harder to get through uh, rather than as easy as it was to get in the laboratory with kind of that flimsy door that they had. So the eventual mandate would come out that the cockpit doors be reinforced and hardened uh, and now there's CCTV monitoring and peepholes through them and so forth, so they can kind of see what's going on in, in the cabin areas. So that was one of the biggest changes, because just to put that much more weight on an aircraft, uh, aircraft have to go through a whole Federal Aviation Administration certification process to see how that affects the weight and balance of the plane, the aircraft performance. So it wasn't just as simple as, all right, somebody go throw a bigger door on the cockpit. Uh, that was one of the major changes. Uh, another major change is prior to 9-11, the policy of the airlines was one of uh, really sort of don't fight back. It was called the common strategy. And it was so common, it was published publicly in the Aeronautical Information Manual, which was available to anybody. And the common strategy was basically cooperate with the hijackers. Let's get the plane on the ground safely. Let's let the FBI take over and do their job. So in all likelihood, the pilots on 9-11 offered little to no resistance, tragically, uh, because that's what their policies said. That was what they believed to happen. And it's like 
on a football field. Everybody knows it's going to be a run to the left and then it's a pass to the right. Nobody was expecting it. So that was the other policy change was one of active resistance uh, to somebody trying to take over the cockpit. Pilots, flight crew members were all given additional training and self-defense. Um, that, that would kind of go to the, to the wayside uh, eventually. Uh, as would some of our other security measures, the earlier ones, uh, simply because it's, okay, 9-11 is a long time ago now. Do we really st still need to do this and so forth? But those are some of the initial changes that took place on board the aircraft was the cockpit door and just the overall attitude of active resistance instead of uh, passive compliance. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up, kind of the uh, the football analogy, so to speak, of, of a run to the to the right and a throw to the left. Um, when you listen to the air traffic control frequency broadcasting, and certainly these these attackers were using PAs and to talk to the uh, passengers, but it was also picked up through the air traffic control network, and you hear them plainly explain, you know, everybody remain calm. We're going back to the airport. So even those on board had little to no idea of the actual intent and were being led into a fallacy that they themselves were going to go back. And this was going to be business as usual per what we had previously talked about happening uh, overseas. And so even those pilots, those passengers, those flight attendants on board had you know probably every right to believe that this was going to be what they had trained for or what they had seen on TV previously and that this would be over in a negotiation fashion. Everybody would be walking off the airplane, uh, off the tarmac. Um, so as you talked, there were some immediate changes, the doors for one, some of the uh, training policies for pilots, like you said. And, and um, can you speak a little bit on even the federal air marshal program? Is that kind of omnipotent force, uh, kind of a godlike infrastructure that seems to be everywhere on every flight, but there's a lot of math that goes into the calculation of what flights they're on, and so to speak. And certainly, pre 9/11, there was not the infrastructure that there was post 9/11. They they ramp that up like typical government does. Throw the bodies there, get them on board, um, and and it you know it seemed to be the appropriate response at the time, certainly. And then you had something that was done for the first time in aviation history was the FFDO program and the Federal Flight Deck Officer program. Through DHS, and can you speak a little bit to that? Um, it's a quiet program, or was when it was initially um, uh, made, you know, marked through legislation through Congress. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that um, and on its onset, what it took, what they did, and, and its effectiveness? Sure. The, uh, the interesting thing about the Federal Air Marshal Program is it was one of the first security measures that our industry ever implemented. It goes all the way back to the early 1960s, and it's, it has went away and come back a couple of times. So the program lived until about the uh, uh, 1970s. And then once we're screening people, the program went away. Uh, it came back with the hijacking of TW-847 back in 1985 and was reintroduced then. Uh, it was fading away again when 9-11 occurred. There was 33 air marshals still on the payroll, which wouldn't even be able to, wouldn't be enough to even cover a small handful of flights today. Um, so the air marshal program is really uh, reinvigorated as I guess the best, best word I could use for that. Um, it's, it's ramped up significantly. Uh, they start hiring thousands of individuals, uh, vast majority police officers and other federal agents uh, transferring. 
the uh, uh, their agencies. And there was also a tremendous sense of patriotism that took place. There, there were people quitting jobs as doctors and lawyers to become screeners and air marshals. And there was a real national sense that uh, we are now at war. Uh, we've not been at war since World War II in terms of a, a, a national threat um, at that level. So we saw a lot of that occurring as well, which was kind of, kind of interesting. Um, but now the air marshal program, several thousand air marshals, still not enough that you're going to find one in every flight. That would require hundreds of thousands of air marshals. But there is intelligence into and some planning into which flights that they are assigned to and how their operational structures work and so forth uh, without getting too far into into that. But um, we, we pretty much know there's not one on every flight. We don't expect one on every flight. But the fact that there could be one on a flight, that in and of itself is a deterrence because now as a, as a criminal or as a hijacker, I have to take into account that I might have to deal with an armed person on this plane. Whereas before uh, 9-11, the chances of dealing with an armed person on the plane were pretty slim. And the, uh, they didn't have to plan for that. So there's been some attempts to eliminate the air marshal program again since 9-11. And the, the problem with that is, I'll go back to my football analogy. If I know nobody's covering the receiver, guess who's getting the ball? So just the fact that we have an air marshal program out there is a level of deterrence. Uh, The other program was the federal flight deck officer program, which is essentially arming pilots. And this was something that it dates all the way back to the 1960s as a concept, because they did look at it for uh, defense of the cockpit in the early days of hijackings. But the, the insurance issues that come with that, the safety issues are really significant with that is, you're potentially putting rounds through the side of an aircraft at altitude. Um, just the, it wasn't worth it uh, to, to have that program at the time. It just didn't justify it. But post 9-11, a lot of pilots wanted a way to fight back uh, other than just hand-to-gun combat or hand-to-hand combat. Um, so it was pushed by the airline uh, unions and initially called the Armed Pilots Program, but eventually called Federal Flight Deck Officer. Uh, It's a voluntary program. The pilots have to send themselves to the program. They have to pay their own hotel and pay for their food and all that. Um, TSA does provide the training. They're actually trained by air marshals and given a firearm. And then they're allowed to use that in defense of the flight deck. So for the period of time that they're on that flight deck, that they're operating as a a member of the flight crew, uh, they're allowed to use deadly force in defense of the cockpit. Beyond that, they don't have any jurisdiction. So that's something I think a lot of uh, a lot of people think we commission tons and tons of more federal agents to go out there and enforce laws and stuff. No, this was just for and just is for the defense of the cockpit. That's very interesting. And, and again, to analogies, post 9-11, in addition to those two security mechanisms, you now have the American passenger. And I think there's a lot to be said about the mindset, the shift that changed post 9-11 to where you see even today passengers getting involved on scuffles or security uh, incidents and issues mid-flight. And I think that mindset has radically changed. The American public as a whole, even two decades later, still has the mindset of this is not going to happen on my flight. 
um, and, and they're treated somewhat as the 12th man, um, which I think from a security uh, standpoint is, is great when you're up there and all you have are two pilots, maybe some additional individuals in the cockpit and uh, a host of, of flight attendants to fend off whatever may be coming their way. Just knowing that you'll have help, uh, certainly from a law enforcement perspective myself, if somebody else is going to jump in and help you out, um, you always are appreciative of the additional help. And, and so with that, talking about today, and certainly uh, I think it would surprise many in the, the American public and even some of our audience members listening today of the active threats towards aviation. And surprisingly, um, it has not slowed. Um, it's been steady these past two decades. Um, the threat landscape, so to speak, has uh, shifted and changed and, and evolved. Um, but even some of those threats that were relevant two decades ago are still relevant today. Um, and so can you speak to kind of the, the landscape of today, even two decades later, the importance of a continued infrastructure and security mindedness in the aviation world? Um, and, and we'll let you uh, parcel that out. It's interesting that the, the threat matrix itself includes bombings and hijackings. It always has. I think it always will. Uh, no matter how effective our screening becomes, aviation is still a number one target for terrorists. It forwards most of their goals. Uh, it, it's an economic strike. It's a, a strike to uh, the overall feeling of safety and security that we have as Americans. Uh, it's it's a strike to personally, but with just with death and destruction. So there's a lot of goals that attacking aviation uh, fills for a criminal entity or a terrorist party. Um, so bombings, hijackings. Prior to 9-11, we did have active shooters at airports. It just did not happen that much uh, that we really did anything necessarily about it. It was, it was a one-off. It was occasionally. Um, Columbine, of course, changed that for us as a society, not just in airports. But active shooter, I think, is a significant threat at airports now. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I kind of get challenged on is I'll hear from some security professionals in, you know, in good debate uh, that, you know, we should slow down the screening lines and do a better job of vetting what's coming through the checkpoints and so forth. Well, that is okay if you're looking for something in someone's bag or on their person, but you also don't want to create a massive log jam of people standing outside in a security line because now you, you've created an area that's, that's right for active shooter, uh, terminal bombing, uh, vehicle bombing at the terminal areas. You've just got all these people packed together. So that's, I think, one of the more, I mean, let's include that with uh, bombings, hijackings. The active shooter needs to be right up there with that because um, it's it's going to shut down airports. It's obviously going to cause death and destruction. It's going to forward a lot of goals that the terrorists want forwarded. So I think we need to include that. Um, we definitely need to include cyber attack as our industry becomes more reliant on technology, and even as aircraft operations become more reliant on technology, uh, the more that we're communicating both in navigational ways and uh, GPS and, and communication ways, uh, those are things that can be hacked. Those are things that can be interfered with. So I know the FAA and, and the cyber infrastructure um, security agencies are, are always actively working to try and prevent cyber attacks on, on aviation. 
Right now, those have mostly been limited to airline reservation systems or um, stealing identification data from an airport database or something. Uh, but the nightmare scenario is, of course, being able to send false information to an aircraft that could cause it to crash uh, or somehow have the ability to take over the airplane from the ground. So I think uh, I think cyber is significant. We've heard a lot about drones. Uh, drones are both a a benefit to our industry because there's a lot of things we can do with them in aviation, but also they, they do present a threat. Um, as does really, I guess, anything in our industry. You can take a plane and use it for good or use it for evil. But uh, with the drone aspect, a lot of people are looking at it and saying, what can this do? And we've got to make some risk management decisions uh, about how much money we should spend on counter drone defense uh, versus what that threat actually is. So can somebody load up an explosive onto a drone and try and fly it into an airplane? Yeah. I can also stand at the perimeter fence and shoot over the fence too, uh, or throw a bomb over the fence at an airplane or climb the fence. Or, there's all these other threats out there and I have to, to make decisions as to where am I going to spend my money and where is that risk coming from? Uh, we have seen some attacks using swarm drones in, um, in Saudi Arabia and, uh, we know there's been drone attacks on, on U.S. forces throughout the world. Uh, right now, mostly drones are a inconvenience to air traffic control because there really hasn't been an attack using a drone here in the United States. So that's something that we it's more you, you keep an eye on. Uh, we need to keep measuring that threat so that if it does become a serious threat, we're, we're able to respond to it. So, James, as you know, measuring the threat matrix often leads to some sort of security recommendation for implementation. And I would like to hear from your and I would like to hear your thoughts as a former airport manager with an extensive security background, just how someone responsible for security management at their respective companies can make the best case for security changes to their executives who may see the security department in a more negative light as being nothing more than just a cost center. And also from your perspective, what are the benefits of professional organizations such as the American Association of Airport Executives? AAAE, and ASIS International in assisting these professionals with best practices and a professional network to assist them with common and perhaps even not so common security challenges at their respective company. It's tremendous. I've been involved with the American Association of Airport Executives uh, since before 9-11. The, they helped me out tremendously right after 9-11 when they, uh, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission decided to shut down 500 airports in November of 2001 um, because of a, a potential nuclear threat. Somebody was going to fly a plane into a nuclear facility. And my airport happened to be located near a, a decertified nuclear facility, but they're, uh, they, they were apparently still on the list. And I called the American Association of Airport Executives, I called AAA, and I said, I need help because we're on a list we shouldn't be on anymore. This place is closed. It's cleaned up. Um, help us out. And so legislatively, they were able to work uh, to help us uh, with people from Congress. Uh, regulatory, we were able to, to receive assistance uh, through their, their work, through their connections with the regulatory agencies. And then ever since 2003, I've been a trainer for them. So just kind of that thought dawned on me the other day. It's almost two decades that I've been training for this organization. Uh, they initially asked me to, to train the airport security coordinator course. Uh, so I said, sure, you know, it's something I can do a few times a year. That led to writing the airport certified employee security program 
which is now a, a four-day program to uh, basically train people to be airport security coordinators. And you bring in the threat matrix, you bring in aircraft security, you bring in enough historical so that people have credibility when they're talking in this industry, um, which eventually led to uh, a publisher saying, how about a textbook on this? So that eventually led to the publishing of Practical Aviation Security, uh, the textbook on that. And it was really just kind of a slow roll that that whole thing started up. I didn't I didn't intend on becoming a security expert. I was actually kind of following more of an airport management track by then. Uh, so I kind of got pulled back into it. But through AAA, they have your lobbyists. They have people that speak to the regulatory agencies, TSA, FAA, virtually a daily basis. And there's not too many people as an airport director or security coordinator that can pick up a phone or open an email or send a text directly to regulatory officials and their congressional leaders. They might be able to send it there. It doesn't mean they're going to see it. But going through AAA, that amplifies that voice. And that's where I really see the benefit of, of that organization. Also, the, the certifications give you credibility. Uh, it gives you knowledge, which you need, but also it gives you credibility. At the recent Aviation Security Summit last year, had a great uh, speaker up there, and he kept misstating a certain term in our industry that's very common. And, and I don't want to get too far into the details because I definitely don't want to embarrass him. But um, every time he said that term and he said it wrong, it, it reduced his credibility with the audience because they're like, that's not what we say in our industry. That's not what that is. And part of my purpose when I'm training people in airport security is I want them to be able to apply the necessary security measures and be proactive and be forward thinking. But I also want to make sure that they have the credibility to speak to TSA, to speak to uh, their legislative and regulatory officials, and to speak to their own boards and the public. So when things do occur, they have the knowledge to be able to say, okay, here's what happened. Here's the security measures we have in place. And here's what we're doing about it. And that's that's really my, my goal with that training. Jeff, it's a great story about how you ended up in the security side of the aviation industry um, and then the training portion at that. Um, and as you know, uh, we talk a lot about transitions on this podcast and uh, whether it's a transition from the military or law enforcement into the private sector. Um, and if I had to pick just one industry, the aviation industry would probably be my favorite one to pick. Um, now, with that said, what is a good path for a security professional who doesn't necessarily have an aviation background? What is beneficial to their professional development? And how do they simply take off, you know, no pun intended, into the right direction to be both successful and stand out in this industry? There's a couple of different paths they can take. There's, there's TSA, which is uh, a much more open door for getting into the security side of the industry. A lot of people start off as transportation security officers, screeners. Uh, then they can work their way up to security inspector positions and assistant federal security director positions and, and those uh, types of uh, those types of jobs. Uh, there's the air marshal industry, which if you already have prior law enforcement background, particularly those coming from the military that might have that, uh, that door is available on the air marshal side. And then you can also transfer out of the air marshals eventually, if you'd like, to other areas of TSA. Uh, that are maybe more more managerial in, in scope. Um, on the airport side of things, really the, the two pathways into aviation security there, uh, well, there's three, I guess. Um, you can become a police officer and at an airport, and that's going to immediately get you into that element and then work your way into management uh, areas. Um, you can come in through the airport security uh, departments, 
which are not large departments. So these uh, these positions don't open up that frequently. Uh, sometimes people come in through the security guard ranks or uh, they'll go directly into working at the airport badging offices or the security compliance offices. Uh, so th- that's a, a pathway to get into there. There's also coming into the aircraft operator security realm, which is even harder to break into uh, because the aircraft operator, the airline side, you have to work your way up through the ranks so much that you're going to find yourself doing a lot of non-security things before you get uh, high enough in that organization to, to be um, you know, really involved in security. Uh, but the ground security coordinator position with the airlines is a good place to start. Um, that starts at least getting you into that infrastructure and doesn't require a tremendous amount of experience to get into. So some primary ways to get in really uh, TSA going directly into airport security, looking for those positions. That's where something like AAA can really help because they're constantly posting jobs in their, their weekly uh, newsletter and then through the aircraft operator uh, world as well. And plus just overall, a lot of federal agencies have uh, roles in aviation security like customs and immigration. Uh, so there's those agencies you can also come into as well. And Jeff, thank you for sharing those uh, thoughts with our audience and specifically for those who are thinking about a career transition or starting their career journey in this industry. Um, the insight from others such as yourself is often just so valuable to those who are thinking about where to go next and how to arrive at that destination. We'll make sure to link some of what you mentioned into the show notes for them to review as well. Um, now, lastly, uh, before we wrap up our discussion with you today, um, what is the best way for someone to get in contact with you, whether they have questions about entering the industry or already in the aviation or aviation security field and are looking for professional mentorship or insight and guidance on a single issue? I'm a big user on LinkedIn, so easy to find me on LinkedIn. And I try and post almost daily something going on. Uh, it's not always aviation security related because I, I cover the gamut of airport management through through my training. Uh, but that's always a great way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Um, my company, Leading Edge Strategies, uh, that's my side business in addition to my teaching. You can really get a hold of me through either either way. Just Google leadingedgestrategies.com, uh, um, and that'll get you to my website. That'll also get you connected over to uh, some of the AAA training programs that we do. That To your question about how do we get into the industry, one of the things that you can do is take some of those certification classes because some of those you don't need to be working in security to take the class. You can take the class ahead of time. Uh, so that kind of gives you a little entryway into the industry or a little, little leg up. Um, and also through the university, Metropolitan State University of Denver, uh, any of those pathways, people can easily get a hold of me um, or just email me directly jcprice at leadingedgestrategies.com. Uh, I, I do get a lot of email. <laughs> um, I am I, I do the daily delete sometimes, uh, trying to sift through all the news sources out there. So occasionally I, somebody might get caught in the daily delete. My apologies for that. But just email me right back or hit me on LinkedIn and we'll, we'll get connected. Absolutely, Jeff. Um, again, I want to thank you for taking the time to spend with our audience today and provide us with a historical review of the 9-11 attacks of 2001 on the 21st anniversary of these attacks. I know it's a difficult topic even over two decades after to talk about. And I want to thank you for coming on, sharing your story, and enlightening our audience on all the hard work that you and others put into making the friendly skies safe to travel again. Um, and, and really by telling these stories and remembering this day, 
uh, so many individuals did not come home. So many families lost loved ones. And this is the best way to ensure that our generation and the generations behind us don't forget about these individuals and the lives that they could have had. Um, and definitely for security professionals, we want to learn from these events and we want to prevent them from happening in the future. So thank you again for coming on and sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Ron. I enjoyed being on the show and I look forward to it again in the future. You got it, Jeff. We will gladly have you back. I'm looking forward to talking more with you again in the future. And to our audience today, this has been another episode of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Until next time, stay safe.